Well, hello again, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I'm Nurse Mo, and as always, really excited that you're taking some time to hang out with me today. We're going to be studying anemias together. But before we do that, I do want to take a quick minute to give a listener shout out to Jim, who says, just wanted to thank you. I passed my last final and made all A's. Your resources and boot camp helped me be so far ahead. I absolutely crushed. You're doing amazing work helping future nurses achieve their goals. So first of all, thank you, Jim, for taking the time to submit that review. That is awesome. And also, way to go for crushing your goals. I'm really, really proud of you. So if you want to get a listener shout out, all you got to do is submit a review to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast fix. All right, let's dive into anemias. So anemia is defined as a reduction in one or more of the major red blood cell measurements. This data is obtained through labs that provide a measure of the complete blood count, the hemoglobin concentration, the hematocrit, and the red blood cell count. Recall that hemoglobin is that component of the red blood cell that carries oxygen. So it's super important. And when hemoglobin levels are low, the patient has reduced oxygen carrying capacity, and that can lead to tissue hypoxia with resulting symptoms like shortness of breath. Note that a lower than normal hemoglobin level may be due to causes other than anemia, and this can be from intense exercise, being elderly, and being pregnant because there is increased plasma volume in pregnancy. So the hemoglobin, by comparison to the amount of plasma volume, is going to read lower. You'll hear this referred to as hemodilution. Now, hemoglobin can also be higher than normal due to a variety of reasons as well. These include smoking. So when an individual smokes, carbon monoxide is increased, and this reduces oxygen delivery and stimulates the body to increase red blood cell production. We also have hemoconcentration. In cases of hypovolemia, like in dehydration, the concentration of hemoglobin will be higher. There's also polycythemia vera. This is a bone marrow disorder where the body produces too many blood cells. If you want to dive deeper into polycythemia vera, go and check out episode 210. And another reason that hemoglobin may be elevated is because the individual lives at high altitude. This causes what's called a relative hypoxia, which leads to increased production of red blood cells as a compensatory mechanism. So in order for the body to make healthy blood cells through erythropoiesis, it must have sufficient amounts of iron and cobalt, key vitamins, and hormones such as thyroxine. So you're going to see that When we look at anemias, a lot of times they can be due to deficiencies related to malnourishment and other related conditions. 
Now, let's talk a little bit more about the way that anemias can be classified. And one of the ways that we classify anemia is by the mean corpuscular volume, or the MCV. What this means is we're looking at the size of the red blood cells. When the red blood cells are normal size, we call this normocytic. And when there's anemia related, it's normocytic anemia. This can be due to conditions such as blood loss, chronic kidney disease, cancer, aplastic anemia, and sickle cell anemia. The red blood cells are the right size. There's just not enough of them. When the red blood cells are abnormally small, they don't have enough hemoglobin. This is called microcytic anemia. Iron deficiency is the most common cause of microcytic anemia, but other causes include thalassemias, anemia of chronic disease, lead poisoning, vitamin B6 deficiency, and copper deficiency. See, there's those nutrients, those minerals, those vitamins, all those things that play a key role in red blood cell production. And when the red blood cells are abnormally large, this is called macrocytic anemia. In macrocytic anemia, the blood cells lack the nutrients they need to function normally. There are two types of macrocytic anemia. So megaloblastic macrocytic anemia occurs with vitamin B6 and or vitamin B12 deficiency. So that's megaloblastic macrocytic anemia. That's when you don't have enough B6 or B12 or both. Without these key nutrients, the bone marrow is unable to produce healthy red blood cells. And then there's non-megaloblastic macrocytic anemia, and that occurs in conditions where the body is unable to absorb nutrients. It also occurs in myelodysplastic syndrome, hypothyroidism, and alcohol use disorder. Now, another way to classify anemia is by the concentration of hemoglobin in the cell. So normochromic is normal in concentration. Hypochromic is less in concentration. And hyperchromic is higher in concentration. You will often see anemia defined by the MCV and the concentration of hemoglobin. So both of these classifications. For example, anemia due to acute blood loss is normochromic and normocytic. So the red blood cells have the normal amount of hemoglobin, and the ones that are there are normal size. There's just not enough of them. Anemia due to iron deficiency is hypochromic and microcytic. And anemia due to vitamin B12 deficiency is normochromic and macrocytic. I know, it's almost enough to just make your head spin. I swear, I've worked in nursing long enough to realize that I'm pretty sure hematologists and oncologists have the most complex specialty. All right, let's look at the severity of the anemia. This is yet another way to classify the anemia. 
So moderate anemia is generally present when the hemoglobin is about 7 to 10 grams per deciliter. We're looking at adult patients right now, by the way. Many patients in the clinical setting have moderate anemia with minimal or no, absolutely no signs or symptoms. Now, severe anemia is present when the hemoglobin is below 7 grams per deciliter. Okay, let's talk about signs and symptoms of anemia. The general symptoms of anemia are going to be related to that lower oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood and the body's compensatory mechanisms that kick in. Note that symptoms aren't typically going to really be evident until the anemia becomes pretty moderate or even severe. General signs and symptoms include tachycardia and palpitations. They could even have chest pain or angina, dyspnea on exertion, which is that shortness of breath, possibly tachypnea, just an increased respiratory rate. They may have pallor. They'll probably feel pretty weak and be fatigued, and they could even have dizziness or syncope and a headache. So let's look at the types of anemia and their defining characteristics and their key treatments. So let's first talk about iron deficiency anemia. This type of anemia occurs due to lower than normal iron levels, so that one's pretty easy, right? It's the most common type of anemia and is usually caused by blood loss. In addition to the general signs and symptoms of anemia, those with iron deficiency anemia may have koinonychia, which is that spoon-shaped nail. They may also have restless legs and atrophic glossitis, which is a smooth, glossy tongue due to the absence of filiform papillae. This condition can cause pain, dry mouth, it can cause numbness, and even a loss of taste. Iron deficiency anemia often causes pica, which is the compulsion to eat non-food items. These are often ice, dirt, clay, or starch. So little personal example here, I had a friend who was just always, always craving ice, always munching on ice. And finally, I was like, you got to go and get a blood count done. And turns out, bam, anemia. So there you go. Pica is a thing. So what causes this iron deficiency anemia? It's going to occur when there is not enough iron in the body, and this iron depletion can occur for a lot of different reasons. And the main one is from blood loss itself. Blood loss through things like GI bleeds is very common and heavy menstruation. Note that this is, again, the most common cause of iron deficiency anemia. There's also poor absorption of iron, which can occur in things like celiac disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and H. pylori infection. It can also occur after surgery of the GI tract, where we mess around with the body's absorption of nutrients, like in weight loss surgery. In rare cases, it could be due to a genetic condition. Some medications can cause poor iron absorption. Common culprits are meds that decrease stomach acid, such as proton pump inhibitors like pantoprazole, antacids, and histamine receptor blockers like famotidine. 
A lack of iron intake may cause iron deficiency anemia. This is usually going to be more evident in children between ages nine months and one year, and it can be in vegetarians as well. Treatment with erythropoietin can use up the body's stores of iron as it is stimulated to produce more and more red blood cells. Hemodialysis can cause iron deficiency anemia. One study I found showed that patients receiving hemodialysis may lose up to two grams of iron per year. And pregnancy, that can also cause iron stores to be low. During pregnancy, the body produces more red blood cells to support the developing fetus, which uses up the mother's iron stores. For this reason, women are encouraged to take prenatal vitamins that contain iron. If not treated, there's a higher risk for preterm labor, for low birth weight, for developmental delays, and fetal anemia. So how are we going to treat iron deficiency anemia? The treatment will depend on what the underlying cause is. And again, the most common underlying cause is due to blood loss. So a key treatment is to identify the source of the bleeding and address it. Let's stop the bleeding. In severe cases of blood loss, transfusions may be necessary. Low iron intake or malabsorption can also lead to anemia, so the individual may be prescribed an iron supplement. Now, to increase absorption, iron supplements should be taken with vitamin C, like drink it down with some orange juice, and should not be taken at the same time as antacids. You want to teach your patient about the side effects of iron supplements because they're they're really not that pleasant. They can have GI upset. They can have some pretty good constipation with that and a metallic taste in the mouth. And if they're taking a liquid formulation, you want to advise them to drink that through a straw because it can cause tooth discoloration. So if you drink it through a straw, that helps prevent that. With that said, the tablet form can as well. So you don't want them to chew that up, okay? They want to just take it like a regular tablet. You can also teach your patient about increasing dietary iron by consuming more beans. So if you've got a vegetarian client that has iron deficiency anemia, and it's not due to blood loss, up your intake of beans. Um, Other people could eat more red meat. They could eat more eggs. There's even fortified breads and cereals that are high in iron. Leafy green vegetables are good sources, as is salmon. You can also cook in a cast iron skillet to increase iron levels in that way. Severe cases may require IV iron supplementation, which can be administered in an outpatient infusion clinic. Okay, now let's talk about vitamin deficiency anemia. So this type of anemia occurs when the body doesn't have enough vitamin B12 or folate to make healthy red blood cells. Pernicious anemia is a type of B12-related anemia. So in addition to the general signs and symptoms of anemia, your patient with vitamin deficiency anemia may have difficulty walking. They may have diarrhea and weight loss. They may have changes in taste and smell, and they may also have that atrophic glossitis that we talked about with the iron deficiency anemia. If left untreated, the patient could even have neurological symptoms that aren't necessarily related to the anemia, but are related to the vitamin deficiency. These include memory loss, confusion, uncontrolled muscle movements or twitching, numbness and tingling, vision problems, and changes in mood. 
Now, what causes this again is a low level of vitamin B12 and or a low level of folate. And this can be due to a lot of different reasons. One is just simply poor dietary intake of vitamin B12. Since the body doesn't produce vitamin B12, we've got to get it through our diet. So strict vegetarians, strict vegans are at higher risk for B12 deficiency. High alcohol intake can affect the body's ability to absorb nutrients, including vitamin B12 and folate. Medications can cause vitamin deficiencies, including antibiotics, antacids, metformin, which is an anti-diabetic medication, and phenytoin, which is used for seizures. Tapeworm infections can lead to lower vitamin levels. And some conditions increase the risk for vitamin deficiency anemia, including type 1 diabetes, thyroid disease, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, H. pylori infection, we saw those earlier, didn't we? Chronic pancreatitis and vitiligo. Vitamin deficiency anemia can be related to a genetic disorder as well. Pernicious anemia is a specific type of vitamin deficiency anemia where B12 just cannot be absorbed in the GI tract, and that's due to a lack of intrinsic factor which is a protein produced by parietal cells in the stomach. This is an autoimmune condition where antibodies attack those cells that make up the stomach's mucosal lining. So how do we treat vitamin deficiency anemia? Treatment's going to be focused on addressing that underlying cause. We may get dietary supplements of B12 and folate, We can also encourage the individual to get increased dietary intake of these key vitamins. And by the way, folate is vitamin B9. So good sources of vitamin B12 are eggs, fish, cheese, milk, lean red meats, chicken, yogurt, and fortified cereals. Dietary sources of folate are dark leafy greens, beans, whole grains, fresh fruits, seafood eggs, and fortified items like cereals. Now, pernicious anemia is treated with intramuscular B12 injections or possibly high doses of POB12 supplements with hopes that some of it will be absorbed. Severe cases of anemia, again, will require blood transfusion. Okay, now let's talk about aplastic anemia. This is a very serious condition that occurs when there is a failure of the bone marrow to produce adequate blood cells. Though it can be an inherited disorder, it typically develops in children and young adults. It is thought by many to be an autoimmune disorder. A bone marrow biopsy is necessary to diagnose aplastic anemia. So, of course, we're going to have those general signs and symptoms of anemia, but there are a few that are very specific to aplastic anemia, and these include long-lasting infections, bruising and bleeding very easily, petechia, mucosal hemorrhage, and very heavy menstrual bleeding. Additionally, the defining characteristic of this type of anemia is a loss of hematopoietic stem cells. These are the cells in the bone marrow that develop into different types of blood cells. So that's why that bone marrow biopsy is going to be necessary. Your patient with aplastic anemia will have pancytopenia, meaning all blood cell lines will be low, red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. 
So what causes aplastic anemia? It is due to a failure of the bone marrow. In many cases, it is idiopathic, meaning there's not an identifiable cause. However, it's often thought to be due to autoimmune damage of the hematopoietic stem cells. The destruction of these stem cells can also be due to things like radiation therapy, viral infections like HIV and hepatitis, and exposure to toxic chemicals such as pesticides, benzene, and industrial chemicals. In rare cases, aplastic anemia can be inherited. There's also certain medications that can cause aplastic anemia. These include chemotherapy, seizure medications like phenytoin, valproic acid, those kinds of medications, nifedipine, which is a calcium channel blocker used in the management of hypertension and angina pectoris, sulfonamides, such as Bactrim. This is a very commonly prescribed medication used to treat infections like UTI and bronchitis. Chloramphenicol is an antibiotic used to treat serious infections, including meningitis and cholera. And azathioprine is an immunosuppressant used to prevent renal transplant rejection, as well as severe rheumatoid arthritis. So the treatments for aplastic anemia are going to be Let's address the underlying cause. You're probably seeing a theme by now. Patients will likely need blood transfusions and may receive injections of erythropoietin to stimulate the bone marrow to produce red blood cells. Severe cases may require a bone marrow transplant. And the last type of anemia we're going to be looking at is hemolytic anemia. In this type of anemia, the red blood cells are destroyed faster than the body can replace them. Hemolytic anemias are classified as intracorpuscular or extracorpuscular. So intracorpuscular ones, there are defects of the red blood cells themselves, like in sickle cell anemia or thalassemia. Extracorpuscular anemias, the red blood cells are damaged due to external factors such as red blood cell transfusion, which can cause damage to the cell, malaria causes damage to the cell, and the presence of microthrombi. Now, looking at the signs and symptoms of hemolytic anemias, we again, we have the general signs and symptoms of anemia, but we also have some specific to hemolytic anemia, and these include an enlarged spleen and or an enlarged liver. Patients with very severe or untreated disease may develop heart failure, arrhythmias, and an enlarged heart. Hemolytic anemia can come on quickly, which causes a rapid decrease in hemoglobin with an increased reticulocyte count. Now, reticulocytes are immature red blood cells. The patient may also have dark urine or blood-tinged urine due to hemolysis and circulating free hemoglobin. Additionally, the circulating free hemoglobin from those destroyed cells can cause acute renal failure. It can also lead to jaundice, thrombus, and disseminated intravascular coagulation. Note that mild cases may have no symptoms. Sickle cell anemia specifically can cause an incredibly painful event called vaso-occlusive crisis, making pain a distinguishing symptom of this condition. 
So hemolytic anemia occurs when red blood cells are broken down in the spleen or in the bloodstream faster than the body can replace them. Hemolysis stimulates the body to produce erythropoietin, which in turn leads to the production of new red blood cells. These new red blood cells, again, those are called reticulocytes, are immature and they don't function optimally. While some types of hemolytic anemia are inherited, such as sickle cell anemia and thalassemia, it can also be acquired. Some acquired causes include viral and bacterial infections like hepatitis, cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr, and malaria. Mechanical heart valves can damage red blood cells, leading to hemolysis. Autoimmune conditions, including rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, can cause hemolytic anemia, and so can bone marrow disorders and blood cancers. You also can have hemolytic anemia from a blood transfusion reaction. We call that a hemolytic reaction. And then medications can cause it as well. The most common are cephalosporins, which is a class of antibiotics. Other culprit medications include NSAIDs, levodopa, quinidine, and levofloxacin. Some tumors can cause it, as can venomous snake bites. Now, as for the inherited conditions, thalassemia is a group of inherited disorders that affect the production of hemoglobin. Sickle cell anemia is another form of inherited hemolytic anemia. In sickle cell anemia, the red blood cells are rigid and malformed, so they don't flow easily through those tiny little microvasculatures. These cells become lodged in the vessels in a very painful condition known as a vasoocclusive crisis. So how do we treat hemolytic anemia? As with the others, we're going to look at the underlying cause and address that where we can. Blood transfusions may be necessary, and some patients will require surgical removal of the spleen, which puts them at high risk for infection. Specific treatments for thalassemia include blood transfusions, chelation therapy, and bone marrow transplant. Chelation therapy may be needed to remove excess iron, which can build up with frequent blood transfusions. Specific treatments for sickle cell anemia include blood transfusions, pain medication during that crisis, and medications that are aimed at decreasing hemolysis and the frequency of the vasoocclusive crisis. These include medications like hydroxyurea, L-glutamine, and then a few that I can't pronounce. Hold on, let me go figure out how to pronounce them, voxelator and crizanlizumab. I'm not going to lie, that last one was really tough. So again, in general, lots of different types of anemias, different ways to classify them, general signs and symptoms that are going to go kind of with all types, but then each type had its own little subset of specific signs and symptoms. When we look at treatments, we're always going to try to, you know, address that underlying cause and then tailor specific treatments to that specific condition. So I hope this overview of anemias helps you understand this very, very complex condition better so that you can feel more confident whether you're in school or at the bedside. If you're interested in getting this in a study guide that you can download, I want you to check out straightanursingstudent.com forward slash 
power guides. Go there, check out how to get downloadable study guides that go with each week's podcast episode. And I really hope to see you back here next week. I've got a fantastic episode lined up for you talking about trauma-informed care. So I'll see you then. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. 